Thanks for joining and welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. This is a show where we sit down with engineers, artists, producers, and product specialists on the cutting edge of pro audio. I'm Tom Edwards, U.S. Marketing Manager for Focusrite Pro. In this episode, Focusrite Senior Marketing Manager Dan Hughley and I sit down with producer and engineer Josh Gannett. Josh has worked with an eclectic range of artists from Red Man, Method Man, Wu-Tang Clan, Inspector Deck, and Rockwilder, all the way to Steve Miller and Keith Richards. Josh tells us how he became interested in pro audio, how he's been able to work with such an impressive roster of artists, and how he stays current with audio technology. All of that and a whole lot more on this episode of the Focusrite Pro Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I'm really pleased that I'm here with Tom. How are you doing, Tom? I am well. Thank you. We are joined today by a recording and mix engineer who has some amazing credits that I'm really excited about. Like, I've been really geeking out about this. Like, I grew up with all of these artists that Josh has produced and recorded and mixed. He's a mastering engineer to a degree as well, he says. But his credits include Redman, Method Man, Wu-Tang Clan, Inspected Deck, Rockwilder, Steve Miller, and Keith Richards. He's gotten prominent shout-outs on shows like Hot Ones, which is one of my personal favorites, and most recently on Versus TV with Red and Meth's uh, battle there, which was just amazing. On top of all that, he gets to work in the studio that Redman installed in the infamous apartment from his now-iconic Cribs episode. Josh Gannett, welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. How are you, sir? What's up, guys? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. That was a beautiful intro. I like that. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Hey, you know what? It was an easy one for me. And to be honest, I wrote it all down on my lunch break today. Awesome. And it was all, Thank you. Thank all you. from my head because it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm really, truly excited for this one. What first brought you to work with sound, Josh? Well, to work with sound in general, I guess I always had like an interest in, um, I just remember being like attracted to paying attention to like the sounds of the woods at night and things like that. And, you know, I I lived near a wooded area where it was, you could hear just so many different insects and the, and the crickets and the, you know, all that type of stuff at night. It was just so lively sounding. So I was really into that and I just found it attractive. And I remember being in like, it must have been like kindergarten or something like that, walking down the hallway in the school and they had a big billboard up in the in the hallway with all the different instruments that you could play once you got to the next level of school when they started offering instruments. And I remember seeing the violin and a drum set. And I remember thinking the violin looked like a little guitar. So uh, <laughs> right away, I started talking to my mom about the drums. Oh, and when I get to fourth grade, I want to play the drums. And her answer was basically a very firm, not in my home. Um, That happened to me too. I had drums for a short time and I had a 30 minute window where I was allowed to play my drums. Right. My parents got me a uh, Casio keyboard with drum sounds. (laughs) And they said, bang away, son. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. No, but so when she, when she said that, I remembered thinking like, you know, well, that's violin looks like a little guitar in four years, I'm going to play this violin. And so eventually I started going through instruments and all that stuff and getting into it over there. But like the, the moment I remember really deciding that like I needed to do music as like a a core element of my life was my family had the old component unit stereo that everyone used to have in their house, but my parents were never really music people. So it was never on, but we had the big, beautiful speakers and we had the, you know, the record player and everything on top. 
And I was in our basement one time when I was a kid and I, I don't know how young, but I was pretty young, just looking through, I found a box of records. So I just was looking through and I found one that had a cool looking picture on the front of it. So I decided to throw that on. And I remember sitting Indian style in front of the speaker and like, I can picture it like it was yesterday. And I remember putting on that first side of the record and, and it just, before the first side was over, it just like blowing my mind. And that was the doors. Mm. And uh, yeah, so at that moment, like when I heard that, I just knew this was something I had to do. Oh, that's amazing. And gradually from there, just kept adding little uh, influences and encouragements to myself, I guess, along the way of saying like, yeah, maybe there's a way I can make this happen. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, so did you uh, do the normal high school thing of getting into a band once you started playing those instruments a little bit more? Absolutely, I did. I, <laughs> I was in a three-piece hard rock band. I got nice. my first paying show as a musician when I was 15 years old, and we were able to create a little buzz for ourselves at the time locally and maybe a little more regionally, I'll say, little above locally. Nothing crazy or anything. But um, we had a nice buzz and we got like a really good response from people. And and that band actually led me to eventually being an engineer. The last album that we recorded as a band was in a studio that, that ended up being the first studio that I worked in as an engineer. And um, from some other people hearing, I won't go off on the tangent of the fully long story, but from some other people hearing the work of that band, it gave me a lot of opportunities to play guitar on some hip hop records and stuff like that. So it, it kind of pulled me sideways into hip hop a little bit more on a professional end too. And then so when I was playing those records, I ended up starting to engineer at this one rock studio and manage this hip hop studio at the same time in like a pretty fast transition from being a performer into being on the other side of the glass. How did you start learning all the gear and techniques? Did you like apprentice at that studio or were you going home at the end of the day and researching everything you could on audio techniques and then coming back and putting it into practice or, or how did that work? Well, it was in the early internet days, so I definitely wasn't Googling, but there was a certain level of, re I guess I had a little bit of basic knowledge prior from just experiments I had done on my own with like digital four track recorder or, or not even a digital one, like a cassette tape based uh, multi-track recorder, like the old Tascams or whatever that I would take down and uh, we would do some demo stuff with my band. So I had some basic knowledge and some understanding of how like the older artists would actually use four track recorders for doing pro records and how like with the Beatles, you, you know, you keep your bass and your hi-hat on the same on the same track. And then you have room to turn up your bass with your low end and your hi-hat with your top end. And then you have a little bit, almost like you doubled the track or split the track. So I had a little bit of basic stuff where most of it came from after I had done the last album with my band, it was produced by me, you know, quote unquote produced by me and the engineer at the studio that we were working with. And he was an owner engineer of the spot. So after uh, a couple of their rock bands had heard our album and hit me up and said, hey, well, they saw, you know, that I was in the band and produced it. And they were like, hey, will you produce our album? And to me, I, like, I really didn't even know what that meant beyond just that, like, somebody wants me to pay me to add my opinion into their equation. So sure, why not? I'm, I've got plenty of opinions. My one 
caveat though was that like I didn't really know the lingo and how to say things correctly on the technical side. I knew that with my last album with my band at the studio, I was able to communicate my ideas properly with the engineer there. So the deal was that I would produce the album as long as we could do it at the studio that I chose because I knew I'd be able to verbalize my ideas in a way that could be helpful and understood. So we did that and and it just gave me a lot of time to look over the engineer's shoulder because now I'm totally on that side of the glass. And then that album came out and sounded pretty good and a couple other rock bands heard that. And then I got hired for a few more rock album producing uh, jobs. And just every time I did one of those, I was looking over the guy's shoulder. Then I had a buddy who was in a, a local cover band and they wrote three original songs and they wanted to try and do some original songs and record a few originals. So they asked me if I could help them out with it. I brought them into the studio and I asked the guy, hey, do you mind if I actually try and engineer it this time? Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, no problem, go for it. So uh, I brought my buddy's band in there and we did these three songs. And at the end of the day or two days, whatever, uh, after they were all finished up, everybody in the room was kind of like, holy crap, these sound pretty damn good. And mm-hmm. the owner of the studio heard him and he was like, holy crap, man, these sound pretty damn good. Do you want to... So it was kind of just a lot of looking over people's shoulder. And then, you know, not to go on too long-winded here, but from there, some of my first jobs, once I started working at that studio and managing the studio, I had in a great engineer who booked the studio out for a full month and hired me just as the engineer, you know, the the operator, I suppose, and, you know, kind of like the assistant. And he uh, was engineer producing. So I did a lot of work with him that was more hands-on. And then I got an album with Ron Nevison, who's produced some amazing, amazing classics, some of my favorite records. He ended up doing a project at the studio that I was engineering for him producing. So while doing that together and having his like hands-on help, that was really like the biggest moment where it was like, okay, I'm hitting go here. And with Ron, he helped me kind of believe some things that I already kind of was doing, but just wasn't sure if it was appropriate or not of kind of the idea of fearlessness and like that. I'm going to just try what's cool. I don't know what's right or wrong. Let me just try something until it feels cool to me. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's the wrong thing to do. Once I worked with Ron, he was like, no, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. And basically that we're always going to make decisions, make them forward, try and find things that are cool. Don't save decisions for the end and don't be afraid to make a choice. And if it's the wrong one, don't worry, we'll make a new choice to compensate for it. So yeah, that was, that was really the big push. Sounds like you had some really good mentors when you first started out, which is always, and, and no matter what you're doing, that's always a really important and powerful thing to have people there that have been there before that know a good amount of knowledge that can pass that along to you. And that's, that's always great when you have that. Yeah, man, I was definitely fortunate that, uh, you know, a lot of being in the studio, I tell people this all the time when they ask about getting things started. A lot of what happens is just about being in the room, right? And yeah. getting yourself into the right room. And that, and that's the biggest trick that you need to put at the forefront is getting yourself into the room and then getting invited back into the room. Right. And if you can do that, when you're in the right room, like, work's going to happen, be happening and energy is going to be happening in that room and things are going to be getting done with those people. And, and then more people of that same mind state are going to be coming into the equation. And it just gives you just tremendous opportunity to advance and learn at such a faster pace than you otherwise can. Yeah, that's, that's pretty great. 
so Josh, you mentioned that you uh, were coming up like around the time that Google wasn't really, uh, or, or the internet was just coming around. So I think that's right on the cusp of when analog and digital were kind of at, right. at odds with each other. At the beginning there, did you prefer one or over the other, or were you one that chose sides immediately? I didn't choose sides immediately. I, I had an interesting introduction into the digital stuff because all the early things I had done and the early things I learned, I also, I guess I didn't mention earlier, I also worked at my high school had a radio station. So I had a radio show there and learned a lot about engineering on a very basic level for TV radio type stuff in that program. So uh, when I was in that, in that scenario, in the high school radio station, we learned a lot of stuff on analog and, you know, kind of old equipment that was there. I remember while I was there in my senior year, I believe in high school, they got their first instant replay machine. And if you remember the instant replay machine, you know, you push a button and the sound effect pops up and they actually used them a lot in hip hop eventually, but they were big in the radio uh, at the time. And so that was kind of like my introduction to digital. So it was kind of like a cool thing. And then when I did records with my band at the time, we were recording to analog. And then I remember the second album we went to record we were recording analog and they had the new, I don't even remember if it was Pro Tools yet. It might've still been Sound Tools, but uh, they had the new digital rig. And I remember it being like a big deal that, oh, we can do some stuff on extra stuff in the digital realm too. And it's this extra charge to fire up this other machine and run it through the computer. So like, it was kind of like presented at this as this like cool side additional over the top thing that we can add on top. So I kind of met it with interest. And then I remember in the course of the album, there was a kick drum that the engineer wanted to trigger a different kick drum and we weren't going to pay the extra money. We were young kids at the time and everything. So uh, I just remember him wanting to re-trigger this one kick drum and deciding that doing it through Pro Tools would be the way to do it best. And just being like amazed that he was able to, you know, to get this sound out of yeah. something. So I, I was open to it. Now at this point, I yeah. kind of like, I really love the things I'm able to do in the analog world because I've spent a lot of time in analog studios. I like the tactile feel of like turning a knob and like also I heard a, a phenomenal engineer, Gary Noble was mentioning this to me where he realized that when he used to do stuff on the console, that he wouldn't be looking at the knob when he was making the decision. And it made me think back on how I used to work on analog. When you're on analog gear, it's it's a very good point. You're not sitting there looking, oh, I'm going to boost 3 dB at 1.4. You're looking at the speakers usually and like reaching behind you to this piece of gear or reaching mm -hmm. down on the console to twist the EQ or something. And you're like looking over yeah. here until it sounds cool. And that's the decision you're making. Sure, in your prep work before. So I like that you're able to do that in the yeah. analog world. With that said, there's things I love about being digital. I do a lot of editing. I do a lot of shifting vocals and stuff to keep them in pocket. I try and be a little bit of a ninja with editing where like mouth noises and things like that. I'll, I'll, I don't like to process a lot of those with plugins. Usually I'll go in and manually edit that type of stuff. If you didn't pronounce the letter at the top of the word the right way you wanted to, I might grab the, the same letter pronunciation from another part of the song and just drop that T at the top of the words. I like that I can do stuff like that much, much easier in the digital world than the nightmare that the guys had to go through trying to do things like that in the uh, analog world. Yeah, razor blades and tape. Oh, yeah. And that's what I started learning with was razor blades and tape. And I mean, 
don't get me wrong. I love it. I love it. It sounds amazing. I yeah. mean, ideally, like you, you see what I have here behind me. I know on your, we're only audio here, but you see what, what I have in my rack here. And it's like, I like to have a combination of, mm-hmm. of both worlds where like, I'll take something in the digital element and in the digital realm and just toss it out to some gear and bring it back in. Or, you know, it just depends on what the project needs, but I love instant recall of not having analog gear and not having yeah. to worry about, you know, this channel on the console sounded great yesterday, <laughs> but now it doesn't sound the same today. And maybe it's just also because the console was on for 10 hours when we listened to it last time. And now it's been cooled for how, you know what I mean? And stuff like that, that is just yep. a pain in the butt that we don't have to deal with in digital. That, that part's great. Yeah. And, and you, you said, I agree with a lot of everything that you said there of the hybrid world of the tactile approach and not looking, you know, when you want to cut something by 3DB and you're in Pro Tools, it's very easy to just watch and be like, okay, we're at eight and now we're at 5.0. Perfect. That's 3DB. And then you're not listening. You're, you're right. mixing. And, and I'm guilty and I'm guilty of the same thing. So that's why I do enjoy the hybrid approach. But with that said, it's like when you do practice closing your eyes a little bit or listening a little bit or, mm-hmm. or looking without getting stuck on the number. Yeah. It is very nice to have the uh, ability of doing both. Cause you can do amazing stuff now, especially with the upgrades and some of the plugins and mm-hmm. the overall audio quality, you can really do amazing things on the digital side where, where I tell people not to get too hung up on that stuff is like in the plugin world when it's like, don't worry about it sounding like the, analog version. It's like, if you have an 1176 plugin, like people might say, oh, it's not like a real 11, which 1176? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> first of all, we can start with which revision. And then even if we go to, okay, let's say we're talking about the D revision or something, oh, who's, yeah. you know, which one, <laughs> you know, who's, who's actual yeah. one are we modeling? Cause I've been in studios where we have three of the same revision and they all sound different. Yeah. So the question becomes, is it usable? Does it do something that's functional? Can you utilize it as a tool to help create the overall sonic texture that you're looking for? And if you break it down like that, they have some amazing tools that you can do all of that with. Yeah. And you know, you kind of reach this state of diminishing returns with some things where it's like you might pay three times as much for this piece of gear, but it's only going to sound 10% better. Oh, sure. And some people can afford and want that extra 10%. Sure. And sure. others are like, ah, the plug-in version sounds pretty great as it is, and I'm, and I'm happy with that. Right. And on that on that end of it, too, it also depends so much on if you're going vintage or brand new. And if you're going brand new, are you going boutique or, or you know, major? Because it's like when it comes to the investment part of it, some of this vintage gear, you're going to you're going to pay out the nose for it. Oh, yeah. But it's going to hold its value in a lot of cases. Usually it'll hold its value anyway, and it may go up. But you're going to have problems that may come with it mm-hmm. and and repair costs and just general design issues and heat issues and electric draw issues mm-hmm. that may come from this. Whereas with the modern gear, you might lose a little bit of value over time with it. But you're also probably going to be in a plug it and play situation yeah. where it might be a box that does all the three things you wanted it to do in one box. And it does them all just good enough that you're happy, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, what's the difference between a 1073 model or how many 1073 clones are there out there? You know, that's right. You know, they're all going to sound different. That's a, right. That's it's a, like, don't, don't use the plugin, use the BAE. It's like, well, BAE didn't, you know, it's not their thing either. No. They may make a great one. It's just like with, I always go to the 1176 for the same reason you mentioned the 1073, just because there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, 
the warm audio one. There's a purple audio one. There's there's a there's a million of them. I yeah. could go. There's a Clark one. There, there's a million of them. Neve, Rupert uh, Neve. Yeah, and the question comes down to: Does that particular piece of gear sound like a usable tool that you can get something with? You don't need to worry about does it sound like the other one. Does the you know compression act exactly the same as I expect it to from my other one? If it doesn't, just learn how it works and decide is it usable or not. That's all. Mm-hmm. You, know. you mentioned that Doors record, which is awesome. That first record that you put on and sat down uh, with your legs crossed listening to. That's really great. And you mentioned some of your early studio mentors. Who are your current musical and engineering influences that you might not have mentioned? Influences? At this point, I won't say anybody specifically for their sonics. Not that there aren't people that I am extremely big fan of and and admire their work greatly. Just that there's nobody where it's like, oh, I want to copy what he's doing and get to that sound of like that type of sound. Like, I think there's just so many guys who I just respect their dedication and achievements and overall accomplishments and the way they carry themselves as human beings in the course of it. A guy like Mark Arcelli, uh, who's a, a phenomenal human being and an incredibly talented engineer. I mentioned Gary Noble earlier. Another, He's another one of those guys. There's so many of them. I feel bad even mentioning anybody because I know I'm going to end up leaving a lot of people out if I start going down the rabbit hole. But, uh, you know, Ken Lewis, he's a, another uh, great one. I, I could really go on for way too long on that list. And again, I'm just going to cut it short there because I know if I keep starting naming more and more people, that's going to be more and more people I think that I left out. All right. But uh, the main point being, it's not like I don't go for a guy that's in um, just one particular genre of music. A guy like Baines, too. I love Baines. And okay, this one I have to give. See, (laughs) See, you did did, this to me. I started something here. You did this to me. And I'm trying hard to keep my uh, language uh, professional here. (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, one guy that I love and I'm a huge fan of, I am grateful to say that I have a small little... uh, tiny pimple on the butt of his story uh, is a guy named Derek Anderson. He goes by 206 Derek. He was uh, Nipsey Hussle's engineer. He was TI's engineer. He's engineered for Maya. He's engineered for, he's engineered for uh, who's who of artists and currently works with Travis Scott. But I actually met him before he was an engineer and he, you know, we just had a conversation where he was, working at a uh, with a team that hired Redman to do a song for a promotional thing. And they flew us out to Seattle and had us up in this mansion where they were doing the video shoot. And they had a chef there and everything. So the one morning, nobody's up yet. So I go down, I feeling like a little rock star, living my pretend rock star life on the coattails of my buddy here for the week. And I go down and have the chef making me my breakfast and I'm sitting at the table. And this kid comes down who w- was friends with the crew the local crew and just starts talking to me about like, how'd you become Red Man's engineer and this and that. You know, I said a whole bunch of crap that had nothing to do with music and just all kind of similarly to what I was saying to you earlier about just getting in the room and the personality and being somebody that I want to spend 12 hours locked in a dark room with, without windows and being invited back and all these things about kind of how you carry yourself Mm -hmm. and and how it's energy-based and was using the examples of the fact that the previous night I was in a studio with Redman the night we got there and we went into the place and he just had to do something quick. They had a house engineer who was sitting behind the board. I'm standing in the back of the room the whole time. But if anything was wrong, Red knew I was there to say like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll help out. 
but it sounded fine. I didn't say a word or touch the board at all. There was no reason to. So that was kind of the example I gave to the guy that, you know, you met me last night and you're asking me about being Red's engineer, but you never saw me touch a piece of gear. Like there was another engineer in the room. So it's kind of just about understanding sometimes how to play your role and earn your way back into the room. And then you'll get bigger opportunities that come. So I thought I lost touch with the kid after that. And then five or six years later, I'm in LA working with Red and I posted something up that I was in LA and I get a DM from a guy that says, oh, hey man, I leave in the morning, but I need to come meet you. I just saw you're in town. I, I leave at 5 a.m. I got to come see you where you at. And I was at a studio, sent him the address. I go to the kid's page and I just see all these credentials. I'm like, oh my God, who the hell is this kid? Well, it was Derek Anderson who uh, told me the rest of the story that I didn't know, which was about a month after that conversation, he just said, screw it, I'm going for it and packed all his stuff in his car and drove down LA and moved to LA and just threw himself out there and tried to make it happen and got kicked in the butt a million times like we all do. But, and, and I'm not saying this in any type of credit to myself, it's a credit 1 million percent to him, but uh, was that same type of person to, mm -hmm say that I'm not going to worry about the talent and the everything else and the shortcomings and the mistakes. I'm just going to worry about the right energy of being in the room and learning while I'm there. And then eventually I'll get there. And man, did he ever get there? Yeah. You know, he's been Grammy nominated multiple times and yeah. So I went from, thank you very much, Dan. You got me going from not wanting to leave anybody out to now I'm giving people way too big of no, an endorsement to where now I definitely left someone else out. <laughs> no, that speaks to you full circle though, how you had those early mentors and then you became one. You know, I don't know if you realize that or not, but you just explained a mentorship there, you know, which is really awesome that you gave back. And, you know, it seemed like Derek wanted to get back and see you and thank you for the advice. Right on, right on. And I, I won't take any like mentorship type credit because yeah. legitimately it was one one conversation right. I had with, the, with a random kid, but it was, you know, that's why it's like, I guess it's a credit to just the power of our words to be yeah. an inspiration to people that are on the come up. And then to his credit, it really speaks to the power of our ability to accomplish things if we just put it into effort and genuinely care to do it. Yeah. I've had the same conversation probably a thousand times with a thousand different people that asked me something very similar. And I usually give some sort of answer like that that has nothing to do with turning knobs or 1K or yeah. anything. It has to do with being a human being and yeah. the energy that it takes to be in a room and, and work with people and have them trust you with their art and trust that you have their best intentions and their art's best intentions and and all that and make them feel comfortable and safe with you, you know, helping them on their project. The number of people who take that and turn it into action on that type of level is extremely limited. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I'm a huge fan of his just because I've gotten to see that progression of being just like this. I'm hungry for something to now I'm sitting on top of the world yeah. in that field. And it's just I'll, I'll say even as somebody who he was talking to as the quote unquote inspirational part of the story at that time, like he's very much an inspiration to me at this point, just like to see the power of the growth. Now, that's a great story. And, you know, that that kind of we've all experienced that when someone, you know, you might have had a conversation with years ago comes back to you and, and it repeats your words back to you and says, you never you'll never know what these words meant to me. They changed my life. And you're like, really, man, I was I was high. I don't remember saying that. Dan, that conversation was the biggest accomplishment that I've ever uh, had in my career. Like, I love, I love the I intro love game. It was awesome. It hyped me up. It made me like, wow, I've done some cool stuff that I actually maybe need to stop and think about sometimes. <laughs> no, you have. But the truth is, like, that story that I just told you, like, 
that to me is like the coolest thing that I've been able to do is that like the fact that I sat there and had some dumb stuff to say to a kid at breakfast yeah. who uh, I could have just as easily been in a, in a nasty mood that day and yeah. just been like kind of blown it off yeah. or something. Thank God I wasn't. Um, yeah. Cause then he probably still would have accomplished this and remembered me as the other guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's a really good point. You, you mentioned, you know, talking about turning knobs and one K and things like that, but all of that stuff you can look up. We're in the digital age where Google, you can find anything you want. The personal side of things, because I know you and Doc, you have a personal relationship. It goes beyond that 12 hours a day in the studio. You're friends. Oh, a million you're, percent. You're legitimate that's my brother. Friends. Yeah. Like yeah, that's that. my brother. Yeah. And that's something that can't be accomplished by just like Googling, how do you become Redman's engineer? Because, right, you right. know, like you, you just said all of the things like he has to trust you. That's his livelihood. And it's yours as well. But he has to trust you at the end of the day because he's built himself a brand over decades now. Right. Uh, and not to not to cut you off, but to your point there, it's mine also. But I always say that you have to remember the rule of the font size. OK, <laughs> and people might not realize what that is anymore because we don't have physical product. But <laughs> what it means is that I have to love it, obviously, because it says my name on it. it's going to represent me. I don't yeah. want it. I don't want people thinking, hey, Josh Gannett did work that sucks. But at the same time. I know that you only know I worked on it if you care to find out mm -hmm. because you looked somewhere in the back or on the inside pages and found that really tiny font where it says <laughs> Josh Gannett. But it still says my name on there, but it says it in font about this big. Oh, yeah. It says somebody else's name in giant font across the front of the album. Oh, yeah. So I just have to always bear in mind that it's like, look, if it sounds like a crappy mix, most people outside of the few audio nerds that I'm going to have to answer to because I know them and they're going to give me a hard time for it. But outside of those guys, it's like the general world isn't going to be like Josh Gannett did a bad mix. He's They're going to say Redman had a song that sounds bad mm -hmm. and it's going to be Red's fault, right. you know, or whoever's name is across the front. So I just try and bear that in mind that I'm, you know, that I'm still a service industry. And even if I greatly disagree sometimes or or wholeheartedly agree at the end of the day, I still have to make sure that the person whose name is written in the biggest font size is is the one who's satisfied, you know? You really hit home with that small font size because I, I have one single second engineer credit on a pretty good album. And uh, yeah, I think I'm like one of three people that read that. Right, but you know it's in there though. I know it's and in there. That, and that's everything. Yeah, I, I bought a copy. I still have a copy of the CD. I don't have a CD player anywhere, but I got the mm -hmm. CD somewhere. Right, uh, exactly. Going back to when you were, you know, first getting yourself started, what kind of difficulties did you face? I know that sounds like kind of a big question, but did you have any, any challenges that you had to overcome either professionally or personally to keep yourself in that business and keep yourself so music was your profession? No, nah, man, my life's been smooth sailing since the womb. No, um, <laughs> no, uh, difficulties, shoot. You know, I can give you all the cliche quotes in the world and they all hold true about getting kicked and getting back up. And I, I don't think I need to go through the list of them. I'm sure everybody knows them. Let's just say they're all true and be prepared to take punches. And the difficulties I faced were everything from finding work to the social pressures, to the internal feeling of, of other people's impression of even when I actually started doing it professionally and making money, like when I first started making money was actually one of the most difficult times mentally for me to grasp how I felt towards the overall 
profession and if I wanted to push forward. The reason I say that is because, especially at the time when, you know, digital is just kind of starting to pop up a lot bigger and people are starting to get some home setups and stuff like this a little bit. There was this idea of, it's not, I'm an engineer or whatever. Do you do music? That's they would say, do music. And you do music. And if I say, yeah, I do music, that's like in their head, I'm their friend that does music who is in mom's basement, which is code for I'm unemployed because they don't actually record anything. They haven't put anything out. If they do record anything, it's like nothing any, anybody's ever heard of, not because it's no good necessarily, but because they haven't actively pursued it as if they would a career. Maybe they pursued it the way they would a hobby. But mm-hmm. instead of being employed there, I do music. And like, I just, for me, I didn't like the idea that if I told people I worked in music, that I knew in their heads, they were going to think I was unemployed mm-hmm. or that I was their unemployed. So I tried to actually avoid telling people that I worked in music <laughs> for a while. And that was a weird thing, I guess. But it was just like, it wasn't like the cool thing to to try to be in the music business. That's not a cool thing to people. It's a cool thing to be in the music business. Yeah trying to be in the music business as stupid as this sounds, but people don't care about your like journey up unless they see that they can be a part of the success. They're not looking to be a part of the journey up for somebody who didn't make it. Yeah. Um, Especially parents, right? That's like, I, uh, you're going to be in the parents, music business. Friends, social, society as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, my, my father, he's a very successful businessman and in his own right, but for, for him, it was like, okay, so when are you going to give this crap up and get a job? Like, you can't make money doing this. I understand you enjoy it, but you can't, how are you going to live? How are you going to feed a family? Mm-hmm. How are you going to have a house? You're going to want a car. You're going to want a this. You're going to want a that. And my response is, I'll figure it out. Like, there's this thing, I guess I didn't know how to, um, you know, how to say it at the time, but I guess now I more have the philosophy of like, look, People have to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Even even in the hardest times we've gone through, in the worst economic depressions, in the midst of the quarantine and the pandemic, in the hardest, deepest parts of us all being locked down, what you saw happening was things like D-Nice and versus battles popping up. Yeah. Because even when everything else is gone, people need entertainment right. the same way they need indoor plumbing and the same way they need food in their stomach. You know, it's, it's something... The same way they need a beer or or a joint or whatever it is that helps take their mind off of the reality. There's a reason why whenever even things are as tough as they can be that you still see those things people still will find a couple bucks for. Mm -hmm. It's because we need those things for our mental health in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I I have this idea of, well, somebody's going to have to do it. There's always been an entertainer and people are always going to consume it. If not me, then who? And why not me? You know? Yeah. I guess it starts with the why not me and then eventually turns into the, well, if not me, then who? Like, I'm just going to leave it there for somebody else to do it. There's a lot of that type of stuff, I think, that happens early in your career. And then also the learning how to listen was a really difficult thing for me, too. I don't mean learning how to listen to advice from people. I think that is a skill that, you know, is important as well. But I mean, just learning how to listen to records and how to hear the difference between the quote unquote me and they, you know, mm-hmm. the big they and their record sounded like this and why do mine sound different? And and then for me, a lot of that early stage was like picking apart on individual things because the forest was too big to conquer, but I could make sense of this tree here and where we have to keep scope of the whole song. 
mixing and engineering is a very detail oriented thing. So we still need to be able to identify that tree in the scope of the whole thing. So what I initially did to help me get better, it's like, I noticed my kick drum, for example, was the biggest thing I noticed that was like, not as good as the records that I was listening to. It was a glaring difference. And so I spent just like the next month, every day, I was obsessed with working on kick drum stuff and trying to do different kick drum things until I, and just so obsessed, man. And then it, it might've even been two months. I don't even know. But I remember doing a record, uh, a mix one day. It was tracking and mixing day. And it was very early, you know, like one of these budget balls to the wall type days. And I remember bringing it home and listening in the car ride home and being like, wow, man, my kick drum is rocking right now. And I was excited for about five minutes until I was like, wow, now that my kick sounds so good, I think I just noticed how bad my bass sounds. And I just went down the line like that a little bit. So I think the ability to figure out how to listen and identify those pieces without losing sight of the overall thing, yeah. I, I think that was that was a big uh, difficulty, but something that I was that approach helped me get a lot better because of that difficulty. Yeah, I, I also think that ties into something else I've seen you mention before, which is that an hour spent practicing or researching and everything before you go into the studio is going to save you so much more than that in the session. Like it's all about being prepped and have your shit together before you go in. Absolutely. I, I, I was about to start clapping and then I realized yeah. I have a mic in front of me. That was a great but, golf uh, clap, but that should have been, that should have been a round of applause. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I you guys the can't same see stuff. it, but Josh just did a backflip. Uh, <laughs> My backflips are impressive. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it's something that I preach enough to artists, especially up and coming. I don't need to preach anything to a guy like, you know, some of the more established guys that I work with, obviously. But um, no, an up and coming artist, it's like, if you come in unprepared, it's not only your money that you're wasting by sitting there wasting the time. It's also the overall performance, the energy sometimes mm -hmm. will not be in that performance by the time you've got the understanding of the performance because you've wasted so much time of the day just trying to figure out what you wanted to do in the first place. Yeah, especially if it's like a, a whole band and you have one person that's just throwing off everybody's vibes and then it's just nothing mm -hmm. is going right. Absolutely. Yeah. They get bored because, you know, the guitar player keeps screwing up or the bass player keeps screwing up and everybody just keeps playing and they get bored, you know, and Right. Or somebody, somebody's hands hurt or somebody got tired or yeah. somebody got a text message that threw their energy yeah. off or something like this. The thing that always uh, I always find funny, not so much with the more professional players, but with a lot of bands, I haven't worked as much with bands anymore recently. But, um, you know, just based on the projects that I've been busy with, not that I have anything against working with bands. I love working with live musicians and bands. What I used to notice a lot with the up and coming bands was how often you'd be in the studio and somebody would look at the bass player or look at the drums. Oh, wow. I never knew you did that there. Like I never heard that before. Like you guys have been playing this song together in a room for months and months and months, but <laughs> we're so worried about like just getting through your part. Like there's parts where you actually never stop to listen to the rest of the song yeah. and didn't actually even have a full scope of the song that you're helping to write and prepare, <laughs> you know? I had a comment for something that you said about, you know, difficulties that we've all faced over the last year. It's just how much have you guys missed loud music or live music, loud music, loud, live music. I, I man. Yeah. I, I can't wait. And yeah, um, you had an incredible experience at, uh, at Versus, which is, which is cool. You got to be there with Red and Meth, which I thought was great. 
Oh, you yeah. want to you want to briefly talk about that experience a little bit? Sure, man. Like, okay, so the versus battles, you know, as you guys are familiar with, they're just such a beautiful celebration over, generally speaking, of people's music. And, you know, we call them a battle and we call it a versus because of how it originated and, and everything. But they were, even the very first one with Swizz and Tim, it was friendly battle. Yeah. So uh, Red and Meth, theirs was a 420 special, appropriately so. <laughs> Can you explain and, why? I don't understand the reference. Yeah, you know, as the stars of a little film called How High, um, you know, they liked it. It was a good idea. So uh, anyways, they they were doing this special. So they didn't really want to do the traditional like battle back and forth thing. And they've done albums together and they just decided to make it a little more like a performance and just an energy thing. And, you know, I think everybody thought it would be a great idea. And Doc and Matt, to their credit, and their manager, Ellis, James Ellis, they came together all and, and put on something that was really cool and different from what the rest of them had uh, decided to do prior. And I think it gave people a great look into the incredible energy and live performance that they bring forward. And it was able to do it, I, I think, through a video screen. The actual experience of the night was awesome. They did it at, at a, a theater in, in Staten Island. And it's an actual venue that didn't have people in it because of COVID. So there was just a small handful of people. So being in the audience for it, when you stood out in the crowd, it looked, it made you feel a little bit more like, yeah, we're still in quarantine and this isn't a real concert because you see the whole production happening. Yeah. So I just stepped out there for a moment just to kind of get a look at it. And then I went back to my normal post that I would be when, you know, I'm on tour with those guys or anything, or when I'm, I do uh, artist relations for a lot of festivals. So where I would normally be in, in just a live music atmosphere. And I just stood on side stage right next to them, kind of behind the curtain. And when I did that and I couldn't see that there was an empty room of no no fans in it it just felt like a concert man and it felt like uh, mm. oh this is what we do again yeah. and like just back to being in the normal scenario and it just felt so amazing and um you know their performances were great a lot of the moments were unplanned by them and just like spur of the moment things that happened and i think they showed the world why 25 years into the game that yeah. they're still able to have this level of respect. And the biggest thing I can't stress enough is that I hope for any young artists that were watching that you understand the level of energy that these two dudes bring to the stage and that you do not try and stroll around with your right hand in your pocket, spit in your bars because it's just not going to fly no. next to guys like that on a stage. No, uh, no, absolutely not. And I love that you just kind of glossed over that they've made albums together. They've made Blackout is one of my favorite albums ever. One of yeah. my favorite <laughs> hip hop tracks of all time is on that album. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, but, you know, the Rock Wilder is one of my favorite hip hop songs of all time. Amazing record. Amazing. The whole record is so good. But yeah, those guys, their energy together was fantastic. And yeah, you know, you and I talked about it or, or the three of us talked about it before we got going here that I didn't realize that there was no studio audience. You know, I thought it was a concert from this side. So um, right. uh, I didn't get to catch the whole thing. I'm definitely going to I'm definitely going to watch that. And and yeah, for those that missed it, it was it was yeah. really fun. It yeah. was uh, their energy is just next level. DJ next cool, level energy. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. EPMD. A tons yep, of guests. Do it all do from uh, Lords of the Underground, another Jersey native, and he oh. made he actually had a big announcement on it. First of all, he killed it 
with Funky Child, and then he uh, made an announcement that he's going to be running uh, again for politics in Newark. Interesting. Yeah, so he's uh, it, it was just like an awesome, good energy night, man. Yeah. It was really great. And the reunion of the Hit Squad doing uh, doing Headbanger on stage with, you know, we had Eric, Parrish, K-Solo, and Red all, all there doing the record together, and even Keith Murray came out jumping so up and hyping on it. Man, it was great. So good, and... You know, it's funny going back to you and I, Josh, we met just because I happened to check my voicemails and I uh, hate to admit that I almost never check my voicemails, but I had a couple messages from you and you were asking, you know, you're like, man, I got to get a hold of some of this Focus Bright Pro stuff. So you knew, you knew about the products uh, leads me into a question. How do you keep yourself on the cutting edge of audio technology? Man, I, I don't know that I'm that I'm always on the cutting edge. I just know that when I go into my modes of anything, it's like kind of how I was explaining the kick drum. When I get into the kick drum, I have to obsess over the kick drum for that month. Now it's kind of like that. I have my times where it's like, I'll hear about these new plugins. I'm like, wow, what's this amazing stuff that I've never heard of. And what is this? Oh my God, who, who makes that? And all this. But then when I have my mode where it's like I'm in my exploring what's out there, I'll just go like dig deep diving into it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not always on the cutting edge, but like I I love asking other people what they're using and how they're using it and learning how they're doing things just totally differently than me with the same tools. Mm -hmm. I've always been a kind of think outside the box guy. So I generally don't try and like go for necessarily what anyone else is doing, but I, I love to know just like what's out there. Yeah. So uh, it's easy to fall behind on that stuff. But yeah, I think uh, Focusrite, obviously, I, I've had Focusrite gear going way back, man. And um, then eventually I got like uh, for a mobile setup that Red and I needed. I, the, my first Focusrite interface that I got was because Red was going on tour and we wanted to put a studio in the back of the bus and just something though that we could like work and edit and not have to worry about having a big mess and a big pain in the butt and stuff everywhere. Uh, we needed clean, we needed simple, we needed lightweight, easy to store, easy to quick set up and break down. We actually used that on the tour bus for a month and just like the scarlet into a laptop, just noodling around on stuff that way nice. uh, on the road. When it came to when I started uh, bothering you, and thank God you checked your voicemail that day. I know, yeah. Was I had a system that had gone down and I was at the point where I needed to upgrade to a new system. And it's about seeing what else is out there. And I'd heard a bunch of times, first of all, I knew what I liked from the, you know, just the ease of the entry level stuff, like the Scarlet stuff. Personally, I didn't have too much experience with some of the higher end pro stuff. So I reached out to a couple other people that I knew and your guy's name came up a bunch of times as being one of the more mentioned than the others, shall I say? So I was like, Hey, I guess maybe, uh, let, let me see if there, you know, if I can give this stuff a try. And then once I got in touch with you, the honestly, just the, the, not only the equipment, but just dealing with you guys was, uh, nice and easy and pleasurable and enjoyable. And you were a fan of the work already that we were doing with it, which made it, you know, more exciting for me to be working with people that are already a fan of what I'm doing. And, um, and at that point I just said, well, 
man, I really like Dan. I hope this gear doesn't suck. And, <laughs> yeah, was, and, and that's when your trial actually uh, began. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I knew that. And, and I did have that kind of nervousness. Uh, you know, I'm confident in, of course, in our products, but uh, you know, everybody's ears are different. We were talking about other products, you know, your ears are not the same as my ears. And I don't ever tell anyone that something's better based off a spec sheet. I say, you know, if someone comes up to me and say, why is your product better than this one? I said, I don't know. You need to listen to it for yourself and make that decision for yourself. It's not up to me. It, you know, choose with your ears, not with, you know, off of spec sheets and, and things like that. Like you did your research and then you checked it out. And yeah, I remember getting a couple of texts from you. Uh, I remember getting a photo of Doc that you told, you're like, don't share this with anybody. But look, he's got his claret here. Yeah, I didn't share it, but I still have that photo, and I love yeah, that photo. Yeah, he, he, he had his claret all rock, and he, he used it regularly. Nice, but yeah, you know, I I have a long standing, uh, I guess, experience with and a setup with a unit that has. I guess I'll leave the brand name out of it and everything, but one of the units that's largely considered in the audio community to be like the greatest converters ever made. So. I have something that just sonically on conversion is just, it's my standard for comparison. And I, and that sound like is something that's just ingrained into my head of how those converters sounded. Cause I've used them so much. So that system for what it's used for is great, but I needed a new system for my main system and everything, which that wasn't going to be used for, for a number of reasons that are not important. The point being that I have this kind of gold standard of not like the idealistic of, oh, I wonder what this thing sounds for. No, I have in the in the other room something that's considered like the best converters. So I already have kind of like a unfair quality line for something like that. So, you know, when I got your stuff, like I said, I was hopeful. I heard a lot of good stuff. I was really hopeful, but I was also worried that like, I'm going to hear something that is going to sound like a slight difference where I'm just going to be unfairly comparing it to something else. The truth is, man, especially with the, with what we uh, got going now with the red setup and everything, it's, I'm more comfortable mixing in my home spot than I am anywhere at this point. And this is literally the first time that I can say that in my career, I used to dread mixing at home. Like if it was a record that I didn't have the time or the budget to do somewhere else where I just had to do it. At home, I just, it was a nightmare and I would do it, but it was, it was just a lot of things that just weren't working for me. And, and I love it, man. I've, there's a couple projects that I actually recently had switched from the studio to being ones that I'm just mixing, uh, you know, at my place. Cause I said, Hey, I can come out to your spot and do it there. But you're going to limit yourself on, on the caliber of me by doing that because, uh, you know, I'm not as comfortable in your room as I am with the sound here. So with that said, it's like, yeah, this stuff held up to the gold standard and, and I'm still talking to you and happy to be talking to you. So, you know, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I answered your call for today. Yeah, no, and I appreciate it. Uh, out of curiosity, I know you have the R1, the RedNet R1 I, in your setup. Are you using it strictly as a monitor controller or do you got some mad scientist stuff going on? Not mad scientist stuff, but I will say, okay, so I, I don't know the status of it and feel free to leave this on the editing room floor, but I got it pre-documentation. So I don't understand the full spectrum of its capabilities. What I'll say is this, when I first got it, and I was trying to get it set up. I called with one of the guys, had a FaceTime with one of the guys over there at VIP Tech Support and had 
asked him because if you're familiar with the R1, it's got two separate windows on it, one on the left, one on the right. And my assumption when I looked on it just naturally was, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to have the window on my left. I'll have my input monitoring and the window on my right. I'll have my output monitoring and, and things like that. It's like, great. And then I realized that it's not designed for that and it's mm. not what it's supposed to be set up to do like that. It's So I spoke to the guy and I kind of told him what I was assuming that I was would be most usable for me. And he explained to me kind of how it was set up to use. And it made sense, but I said, you know, I think for me, it'd be more just more functional having it set up this other way. So uh, to your guys' credit of who you get doing uh, support over there, this guy is the mad scientist genius because yeah. he, he sat there for a few minutes and then kind of figured out a way that he was able to make it do exactly what I wanted. I don't know if I'm the only one who has it set up this way, but it's a little mad scientist the way I have it. So now I have mine set up that I have a couple of different spill setups on, on the one window. So now I can change the spill. So I have my input set up, which is usually how I run with it, where everything's just all input monitor uh, monitoring on the one side, as far as the metering, excuse me. And mm -hmm. the other side is, is all my output. And aside from that, I'm using it as, you know, my main monitor control. And one thing that I love about having that as a monitor control I have a, a fundamental issue with most of the hardware with a remote monitor controls, no matter how good a lot of them sound, and some of them sound so great, mm -hmm. but they have, you hear the relay clicking in the unit when you turn the knob. And especially mm -hmm. if I'm working at low level and I want to just edge something up a little bit and I'm listening, I don't want to hear that faint mm -hmm. clicking of the relay off on the rack when I'm trying to pay attention and mix. That really throws me off. Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that it's an endless knob. It's a, you know, it's information that's sent for this to happen as opposed to it being like a mechanical motion that you're hearing happen. So I love it. Before we wrap it up, Josh, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? And is there anything you're working on that you can hint at that's exciting or, or straight up tell us about? Well, I can beyond hint because Red's done it, that Muddy Waters 2 is coming soon. <sighs> Just drop the first single, right? The 80 Bars record is not a single off the album. Okay. It, it is part of uh, what Red kind of has is like the Muddy Muddy Waters 2 movement where he has some things he's putting out as like... Uh, oh, some marketing. Kind of like what we'll call appetizers. Got it. Appetizers to the main course. Uh, but the main course is coming soon. Good. And it sounds amazing. I can't wait for the rest of the world to get to hear what he's been putting so much time and effort into and what I've had the pleasure of hearing. I mean, forget about the working on it part, just as a fan to hear yeah. it. I love it. I'm very excited for that one. And I think people will enjoy it, especially people that are already established Redman fans. I got a bunch of stuff going on with um, some of the other guys in Wu-Tang. A bunch of them have projects, individual projects. I'm working on... Uh, yeah, a few other things that I don't know if I'm allowed to mention or not yet. And in the process of potentially being involved in a new studio that's being built out as well. Really cool. So I'm I'm weighing my options in that situation at the moment as well. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your time here today and congratulations on all of your success. But I don't think it's congratulations are needed. You've worked hard and you've earned everything that you have. So mm -hmm. well thank done you so man. much, man. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you guys having me and, uh, yeah, man, hopefully this is also my version of the appetizer for the main course, which is yet nice. to come and, uh, hopefully better things ahead always. 
looking forward to it. Thank you very much, sir. Thank and you guys thanks, so much. Uh, to all the listeners. <laughs>